I V M. Nadasi Kassa, the first queen of the Mahachhatrapa Rajula, the daughter of Yasi Kamuda, the mother of Yuvraj Kharaosta, with the crowd of the women of the palace, has deposited in this part of the earth in a stupa, a relic of the divine Shakyamuni Buddha. It will allow eternal welfare and liberation. This stupa and this monastery are gifted to the community of Sarvastivada monks. that belong to the four quarters of the world The words you've just heard are from an inscription in the British Museum on a red sandstone lion capital that sits alone half a world away from Mathura where it was carved 2000 years ago The workmanship is a far cry from the refined polished carving that Indians generally associate with the lion capitals such as the modern one that is the emblem of the modern republic of india but this has a charm of its own the lions on it have strangely human faces and they must have stuck their tongues out quite rudely at whatever british archaeologist decided to ship it to london for safekeeping but there's also more that sets this pillar apart it is covered in the kharoshti script of the northwestern part of the subcontinent a script that Ashoka Maurya used to speak to his subjects in Afghanistan a script used by the Indo-Greeks who ruled over Gandhara why was it being used in Mathura for that matter what is a mahachhatrapa it doesn't sound the same as a maharaja and what kind of strange names are carved on it nadasi kasa rajula kharaosta those don't sound like your usual indian names like aparajita varman or gautami These lions are too busy irritating visitors of the British Museum to help solve this mystery. So let me tell you the story of the nomadic horse lords who defeated the Indo-Greeks and expanded all over western India, ruling over territory from eastern Iran to Mathura in the Gangetic Plains, from Gandhara in Pakistan to Gujarat. And let me tell you how these so-called barbarians and their patronage of Buddhism led to the genesis of one of the most sublime art forms that the world has ever seen i'm anirudh ganesari and welcome to echoes we're sitting around a campfire in the lush grasslands of punjab in late october close to the turn of the first millennium bce close by someone is throwing handfuls of grass into the flames they spit and crackle clouds of dense white smoke billow out melding with the early morning mist wait that's not grass that's cannabis and we're not the only ones getting blazed as we look around we see dozens no hundreds of campfires At some male warriors swig fermented mare's milk and thump on drums creating a steady hypnotic beat at others female warriors also swig alcohol and inhale lungfuls of smoke singing and roaring in delight groups of fighters sway as shamans chant horses neigh and the pungent odor of their dung suffuses the army camp some wealthy warriors pass around golden implements they can best be described as bongs It's a striking accessory that suits the glittering scales of their armor, 
looted perhaps by their fathers during sackings of the Indo-Greek cities of northern Afghanistan. The sun climbs higher and higher. In the distance, we see a silent force of Indo-Greeks arrayed in neat, orderly lines. Their faces are pinched but confident. They've been observing this vast camp of horsemen for days, and they have the numerical advantage. It was not so long ago that their king expelled these horsemen, these shakas, from the great city of Takshashila which they had captured. He only did that with the help of another nomadic tribe, but in the years since, he has strengthened his power by raising fresh, enthusiastic raw recruits to defend his territory from these barbarians. The new Shaka king thinks he can change that. The Indo-Greek king is here to show him the error of his ways. The sun climbs higher and higher. Soon, the Indo-Greeks are broiling in their heavy armor, whereas the Shakas continue in their haze of drugs and alcohol, apparently least interested in politics and battles. Then a deep horn blares, once, twice, thrice. In minutes, the roaring and trans shakas are on their horses, singing strange violent songs of war. In a few more minutes, to the frantic beating of drums and blowing of horns, they're within range of the Indo-Greeks. The Greeks are angry and thirsty for blood. The king gives an impatient order, which is passed down the lines in Greek and Pali. Their army is to advance until they make contact and can slaughter these fools. The Shakas retreat, and they retreat. The Indo-Greek army passes a little hillock to their left. The Shakas are almost in range of their javelins. Suddenly, drums break out again. A force of Shaka shock cavalry, heavily armored and bearing wicked lances, appears from behind the hillock and attacks the Greeks. The Greek king orders the main force of his army to continue and to engage the rest of the Shakas while he deals with these flankers. At no cost should the lines break. But his raw, untrained army is too impatient. They want to get their hands on the Shakas now. Some men break ranks and charge. Soon, emboldened, they are joined by their squads, running furiously and they think gloriously at their retreating enemies. And then the Shakas attack. Gaps have opened in the Indo-Greek lines and that is enough for these berserk, bloodthirsty, booze-riddled warriors. The Greek army is sewn in half by mighty wedges of screaming cavalry formations piercing them like the trident of an angry god. The drumbeats grow louder and louder, as do the screams of dying and fleeing Indo-Greeks. The king is pulled off his horse and beheaded. Alcohol is thrown up as offerings to the spirits of the sky and poured into the blood-drenched ground. This is the last that the Indian subcontinent will see of the Indo-Greeks. They've had a good run, about 300 years. But now, a new era is dawning, the Shaka era. And though the son of the Shakas will set 400 years later, and they too will merge into the vast oceans of people of the subcontinent, the Shaka era, which they founded, will be used for thousands of years and is in fact still used by the Republic of India in its official documents, though perhaps in a somewhat less bloody context. It's easy to assume that the Shakas, 
Lovers of booze, drugs and war are the stereotypical horse riding savages. But the real picture is much more complex. No doubt they got a lot of bad press from their more settled and literate neighbors, especially in times of conflict. But the Shakas themselves soon settled down and ended up defending their own territory from other nomads in pre-existing states in the subcontinent. From this point, the Scythians or Shakas would be known as the Indo-Scythians, but Indian sources continue to call them Shakas, and since I'm an Indian nerd, so will I. But where did the Shakas come from? And how did they end up in India of all places? In the last episode of this podcast, I mentioned that the Han dynasty of China had displaced its nomadic neighbors who moved west in a sort of domino effect. One such domino that reached India after years of conflict and evolution in Central Asia were the Shakas. When they arrived in northern Afghanistan, which was one of the core areas of the Indo-Greeks, they seemed to have agreed to serve as mercenaries or vassals. However, the Indo-Greeks were never a very unified bunch and the Shakas must have sensed an opportunity sooner or later. Some cities in Bactria were soon sacked, but the Shakas weren't allowed to rest for more and more tribes were on the way and pushed them out. Then they entered Afghanistan, but the Indo-Greeks in Kabul pushed them out from there too, sending them west. They finally found a resting spot in eastern Persia where they settled down in a region which was very creatively named Shakastan, a name that still survives today as Seistan. From there, it was a hop, skip and jump into the Indus River Valley, where they met even more waves of migrating Shakas, who had crossed the Hindu Kush and continued their wars with the Indo-Greeks, this time in Gandhara. The scales swung for a while, but eventually the Shakas won, as the hypothetical battle above shows. Yes, I made it up. Sue me. What I didn't make up though was the fact that Shakas did actually smoke cannabis and drink a lot of alcohol before going into battle and loved smoking cannabis so much that they were actually buried with golden bongs. Coming back to what I was saying earlier though, the Indians weren't just sitting around meditating while all this happened. A Jain manuscript, the Kalakacharya Kathanaka, has an interesting story to relate on this matter. Kardabila. King of Ujjayani abducted a beautiful nun who is the sister of Kalakacharya, a celebrated Jain teacher. Kalakacharya went to Shakastan and requested the king of the Shakas for help. Unfortunately, the Shaka king was terrified of Gardabila, who is protected by a demoness, whose magical voice stopped all his foes. But Kalaka convinced the king to raise an army and cross the Indus anyway. As they approached the city, the demoness opened her mouth to cast a spell on the Shakas. But Kalika ordered the Shakas to fire their arrows into her mouth, filling it up and rendering her mute. Thus, Kardabila was overthrown and Kalika's sister saved. And so came the Shakas to Saurashtra and Malwa. This is obviously a legend, but it tells us something very interesting about how Indians, and I use the term in the broadest sense, you know, just to refer to residents of the subcontinent, not as a nationality. It tells us something very interesting about how Indians saw these supposedly foreign invaders. As the Mathurans and Pancharans had allied with the Indo-Greeks to attack the Shangas, so too, it seems, did other actors, religious and political, 
ally with new actors to achieve their own goals. In a strange sort of karma though, it was the rulers of Mathura who ended up losing out to invaders. The Shakas, once they had polished off the Indo-Greeks in Gandhara, turned their attention to Mathura in the Gangetic Plains. Whether they did so by invitation from other powers or just because they liked conquering like everyone else did isn't really clear. What is clear though is that soon there was a Shaka who called himself the King of Kings in Gandhara and many lesser Shaka and Indian rulers who derived their authority from him and called themselves either kings or satraps meaning governors. Some particularly self-important satraps declared themselves great satraps or mahakshatrapas. Here's an example from a reliquary commissioned by an Indian prince from Bajaur just northwest of Gandhara. In the year 63 of the late king of kings Aya on the 16th day of the month of Kartika at this auspicious time prince Indravarma establishes these body relics of lord Shakyamuni in a secure deep unestablished place he produces brahma merit along with his mother rukunaka along with his uncles his sister and his wives vasavadatta mahaveda nika and uttara this is done in honor of his father vishnuvarma king of apracha This tells us a great deal about just how these new entrants into subcontinental politics and religions behaved. First, this pattern is quite similar to the lion capital that we began the episode with. That one just featured a mahakshatrapa or great satrap instead of a raja or king. Second, Indravarma and his father Vishnuvarma seem to be of Indian descent, but his mother Rukunaka seems to be a shaka and he seems to owe his loyalty to the shaka king Aya or Aziz. His wives seem also to be Indians except for Nika who may be an Indo-Greek. The Gandharan and maybe the subcontinental elites were shockingly diverse. The soldiers were busy fighting but the nobles were busy marrying just as in medieval Europe. Third, it tells us a great deal more about how Buddhism came to spread throughout India. This vast thriving subcontinental Buddhism was very different from the simple religion conceived by the Buddha. a man who despite his unquestioned brilliance had little ambitions of spreading his teachings over a very wide area because if he did he'd have traveled further than just the eastern gangetic plains so how did buddhism evolve into a form of popular religion beloved by magadhans and gandharans commoners and kings alike consider what prince indravarman and queen nadasi have been telling us there's a spin here yes they're establishing stupas and the like for the community to worship at Sure there's a political objective to be achieved but there's also a spiritual one Indravarman says that he's producing brahma merit he is convinced that by making the relics of buddha more accessible to the masses by building a stupa and by spreading buddhist worship into areas where it was not before he is building up good karma of sorts that will ensure he is reborn in a brahma world where according to the buddhist mythology of the day he will live lifetime so long that each day lasts for a kalpa or 4320 million years which genius or geniuses created a set of rules that tied together devotion and politics is unknown it may have been ashoka maurya it may have been a forgotten buddhist monk or an ancient indian public relations expert or somebody even older than that 
but it was ideal for generating incentives for subcontinental elites to spread that religion. The same sort of game theoretic logic we will see emerges in the classical Hinduism espoused by the Guptas later. If a Gandharan Buddhist were around, they would probably shake a finger at me and say, Young man, everyone knows that Lord Buddha tamed the evil Naga Appalala, who used to cause the Swart Valley to flood. I don't see the river flooding anymore. What do you have to say to that, you impudent rascal? I say, respected sir, I give the credit to the Buddhist Sangha and their attempts to convince kings to follow the principles of the Buddhist Dhamma and build canals and embankments to make the subjects' lives easier, though of course the Sangha also profited by spreading and gaining more donations through the deal. Technically, Buddha founded the Sangha, so I'm not disagreeing with you. More importantly, I find it very interesting to see how you developed a standalone local Buddhist mythology that suits the geography and culture of your land, just as the Irish made up a story of Saint Patrick expelling snakes from Ireland and converting it to Christianity. To which the Gandharan Buddhists would have no reply since they are all dead and none of them are left. You may be wondering why on earth I am harping on and on about how Buddhism came to Gandhara. Get to the point, I hear you say, drumming your fingers in your steering wheel. Well, this is the point. Gandharan Buddhism, not just as a religion but as a culture, was one of the most extraordinary contributions that early India made to the world. But to understand it, it is time to dive back from religion into politics. The unfortunate Shakas had barely any breathing space after settling into Gandhara because they were soon attacked by another tribe, the Pallavas or Indo-Parthians. The Parthians were a nomadic tribe who had conquered Persia from the successors of Alexander the Great and were constantly messing with the Indo-Greeks, keeping them cut off from the emerging Greco-Roman Mediterranean world. Now that the Indo-Greeks weren't around, they started to mess with the Indo-Scythians instead. Luckily for us and for posterity, the Indo-Parthians got along wonderfully with the Perso-Parthians, so when they took Gandhara, it was once more connected to the vast globe-spanning silk roads from China to India to Persia to Rome that were emerging. And the Indo-Parthians, like other Indo-whatevers, were very accepting of their subjects' cultures and so went out of their way to patronize Greek culture, Indian culture, their own culture, Shaka culture and so on and so forth. They had the money. They had the policy. Now all they needed was a cause. And in the first century CE, the cause came. An earthquake shattered most of the Gandharan city of Takshila, the most important city in the northwest. Now it was time for a wave of new innovation and creativity to pour in as the Parthians began to rebuild the city in their own image. The Gandhara school of art, in its most sublime and mature sense, was born. And the consequences of that shall echo through any work of Indian, Central Asian, Chinese or Japanese art that you see today. But I'll get to that when I get to that.